Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition, taped today on Thursday, September 15th, 2016. You, however, are listening to this on Monday, October 10th at the earliest. Who knows? The show might stand the test of times, and maybe you're listening to this in 2025, which I totally hope. And it depends on what country you're in. If you're in Australia, this whole thing is just blown up. (laughs) <laughs> Just in case you're wondering who that sultry voice belongs to, it is Joe Mager, the Chief Investment Officer and a Portfolio Manager for Lakehouse Capital in Australia, which is somehow related to The Motley Fool, but legally, I don't know exactly how, so we're going to skip over that. It's owned by The Motley Fool. Okay. Sounds good. How's it going, Joe? Uh, going really well. I'm back at Full HQ for the first time in two years, which has been way too long, but it's great meeting people that I haven't met before, including you, and catching up with people like Chris, who I haven't spent nearly enough time with. Oh, hey, Chris Hill. Um, He's waving at us. Just in case you're wondering how you ended up on this show, uh, Chris Hill walked by my desk, and he did one of these classic, like, taking off my glasses, he's like, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to Joe. Uncle Joe. He likes banking metrics. That's, that's what you sound like, Chris that's Hill. That's a good Chris impression. <laughs> He's shaking his head, but it's pretty strong. Uh, so now that I've revealed the purpose of the show, cool banking metrics. Yeah. Um, I hear that you have a couple that you think that investors should look at that potentially they don't really think about too much. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a nerd in in many facets, uh, but around financials, I I think that people tend to gloss over some of the more important metrics, with banks in particular. Um, people get caught up in some of the, the finer points of metrics, like net interest margins, and they, they get really excited about it. And they can sometimes miss big things, like just the amount of leverage in a bank, and uh, the returns on equity and assets, and how those variables all move together. And they're actually not complex, it's not rocket science, but most people just pass by it, and I think that's a missed opportunity on their part. Yeah, that's that's really sad. That's a little bit like missing the forest for the trees or missing the trees for the forest. Yeah, or the pine needles. So, the, yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, a clean example is so people will look at the returns on equity for a bank as being the best measure for how the bank is doing in terms of creating value for shareholders. So, that's basically rough cutting your net profit over your equity that you've got in the bank. So, Generally speaking, that's a really good proxy for how much value a bank is creating and how much they're earning against equity holder uh, equity. I was going to say equity holder, just equity. But there's another variable there, which is leverage. And I think a lot of people um, neglect this to their detriment. They don't appreciate the amplification and the importance. So basically, there are two levers here: there's return on assets, gross leverage, that leads to returns on equity. Uh, your your gross leverage is the actual amount of assets relative to your equity, and this is all on a balance sheet. You don't need to be a rock star analyst or go get any fancy designations <clears throat> to find this stuff. It's all right there. Total assets over equity. Um, doing that will allow you to find out just how levered the overall business is, and when you multiply that by your return on assets, that gives you return on equity, which is a very helpful way to understand the overall economics. But when you just unpack those two numbers, it gives you more of a sense of what is creating value. Is it operational excellence with returns on assets, or is it just straight up leverage? Okay, so let's take a quick break to talk about what leverage is, um, because I have discovered through angry emails on occasion to the show that, cool. s- that some people 
really want some very basic terms defined. Gotcha. Sure. So overall leverage, the math is total assets divided by total equity. In practical terms, talking about what the bank actually does, banks make very small amounts of money, pound for pound, for how much is actually in the business. They'll make maybe 1% on every dollar that they get in assets in the business. The way the way they make that work is they lever up a lot. So they'll take your deposits and they'll take it and they'll lend it out to people and make loans. And they do that in a big way to help them grow and make up for the overall narrow margins in the business. So that's the leverage that's baked into the model. Right. And this can become a problem if it's used irresponsibly. Yes. So flashing back in time, the the major investment banks in America had leverage above 30 times back heading into the what Australians call the GFC, which they call the global financial crisis. Here we just call the financial crisis because we're Americans. And we're like that was just just our financial crisis. <laughs> um, and really, in, it, if you're not familiar with these numbers, you're kind of like that doesn't mean anything to me. But imagine if you had a house, right? You borrow money to buy the house. How much you borrow against uh, how much you put down is essentially your leverage. So if you buy a house and you put down 10% equity, you're levered 10 to one. The thing is with a house, it's a pretty steady investment. Now, <laughs> if I'd said that in 2006, that would have been pretty embarrassing. Um, <laughs> over time, it's pretty steady though, and you're slowly putting more equity into it. That's a pretty low risk degree of leverage. But if you're doing the same thing with liquid assets and you're making loans that are illiquid, but you've got liquid deposits and people can take money out of your bank, you can have a bank run, and that can come in different forms. Basically, the more levered you are, the more important it is that you're right and you don't make bad loans, and the more at risk you are that your capital goes out the door one day, and you just have to wave a white flag, like what happened with MF Global or Lehman Brothers. It happens. It, not often, but it happens. Um, could you give an idea of how leveraged, on average, big banks in America are today? Yeah, so they used to be high, but it's gotten a lot lower. Wells Fargo's total assets to its equity now is below 10, so it, it was substantially higher than that before. And they's all, they've always been more conservative, except when they're creating a couple million accounts for people <laughs> that don't know about it. Thousands of employees are doing that. Um, in Australia, it's more like around 15, which okay. is a good bit more aggressive. And that's a combination of more friendly <clears throat> local regulation, but also confidence and demand. So, when banks have, and Wells has said this for a while, that there just isn't enough demand for loans for them to go out and lever up more. They'd be happy to do it, but there hasn't been that demand. Another thing is that <clears throat> regulators have been pushing back on banks and saying, you need to lower your overall leverage, because we don't... Well, US when, regulators have yes, been pushing on US banks. Exactly. So, yeah. they don't want to have to... People are still pretty stung about having to bail out the banks. And with less leverage, you're much less likely to blow up. If you do, there will be much less of a needing hand. And overall, it lowers a bank's returns on equity, but it also lowers the systemic risk to the overall uh, economy. And, and specific to the bank, it lowers their risk as well. So there are pros and cons of it. That's that is that is with everything in life. Indeed. <laughs> um, so I feel like we've covered leverage pretty well. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about return on assets? Yeah. So that's kind of the leverage can mask uh, bad operations. So 
return on assets is how much you're pulling down in profit against your actual assets. And that's more of like a kind of pound for pound version of how your bank is doing. Historically, you'll see banks do something like between one and one and a half percent. Before the GFC, you saw some banks that, particularly Irish banks, had numbers that were just mind blowing. I want to say they were above two percent just from memory. And I remember looking at them and thinking, you know, without without accusing that anything was wrong, it just seemed unnatural. It was extremely unnatural. <laughs> that turned out to be the case. Um, what you usually see is a strong bank will have cross cycle return. So, say over a period of like 10 years, an average return on assets of maybe one and a half. A bad bank will be south of one. Banks that are south of one will typically sell at lower multiples than the ones that are higher. Mm -hmm. um, they're not as good a business. So, Wells has historically been on the, the higher end of that. A Citigroup has historically been on the lower end of that. Um, so, one thing that our listeners might not realize, because it's not the most intuitive thing, is that a bank's assets are its loans out to people. Yes. Um, which is a confusing thing, because for most people, a loan is not an asset, but it is for banks. Yes. Um, which is why, when you kind of take leverage and assets all together, it really gives you a very, well, it gives you a more complete picture of a bank than just looking at return on equity would. Mm hmm. And there are other things you could do if you wanted to, to double click a little bit in here. You could look at the makeup of digging into the assets, what kind of loans are made. Mm -hmm. So, if they're business loans, that's going to be higher risk than traditionally than residential mortgages. Um, and even with residential mortgages, there's a bunch of different types. So, like New York Community Bank special, specializes in multifamily um, residences, which is apartment buildings, basically. Um, in New York City, which is a very, very safe real estate market, um, versus maybe someone who is selling just single-family homes on an oil near an oil field in Texas. Mm -hmm. like, That's a great point. Totally great point. And to to flash an Australia example, the the requirements have changed recently. But up until recently, a bank could make a loan on a residential mortgage that historically property is done incredibly well as an investment class in Australia. The bank would only hold up or as little as three percent of capital against that loan, so they'd be levered thirty-three to one on that mortgage. And the logic is the same that U.S. banks had before they, you know, got their face crushed, which was, well, people always pay their mortgages. And there's collateral in the asset, so you're backed up there. There's mortgage insurance, so you don't have to worry about that. And just because one person's mortgage goes south here, someone across the country, that doesn't mean that that could happen to them. I think we all learned that that's not necessarily the case. Australian banks have not learned that lesson. They will eventually. I don't know when, but yeah. So let's actually talk about that. We were chatting a little bit before the show, and you said that Australian banks are really expensive. So this is not a space that I'm normally in, but you were telling me you don't, you don't dabble in Australian banking. <laughs> um, I did once because uh, I studied abroad at James Cook University. Okay, cool. In uh, northern Queensland, in a town called Cairns or Cairns. Mm -hmm. If you're I've been there, a dirty American. Mm -hmm. That's correct. I am. Sure. <laughs> um, and so I needed to open an Australian bank account. Um, but other than that, no, I have not actually interacted with Australian banks at all. Cool. So, up until recently, Australian banks were the most expensive banks in the world. They're still very expensive. Um, why are they so expensive? Well, default rates have been incredibly low in Australia. 
the country hasn't had a recession in 25 years. I mean, just think about that, right? To an American, you're like, what? 25 <laughs> years? That's crazy. It's almost the longest streak ever. And Australians have a lot of confidence as a result of that. I mean, just imagine how different your life perspective would be if you hadn't seen a recession. I mean, you get professional investors who are, um, what, in their early 40s who have not seen a recession. And it's just a very different worldview. That's so wild. Yeah. Yes, it is. And so <laughs> I think the banks tend to make loans with a little more of an optimistic view than American banks do. And investors tend to value them a little more optimistically. So I'm actually rather bearish on the Australian banks. It's not just, it's not because I'm expecting some cataclysmic event, <clears throat> but there are a few things. So, one, net interest margins are getting squeezed. To get back to that thing I was saying, you shouldn't pay too much attention to before. <laughs> um, default rates are near record lows. They won't stay that way. I don't know when exactly they'll pop, but they won't stay that way. Uh, the banks are also paying out around 75% of their income as dividends, which does not leave... Hold on, 75%? Yeah. So, the yields are huge, <clears throat> and everybody loves that, and they get excited about it. But that doesn't leave much room for error when you're levered 15 to 1, because all you need is just a slight downtick in your profit, and when you magnify that, <clears throat> there won't be a lot of gravy left over for dividends. Yeah. Well, if they're smart, they'll cut their dividend instead of trying to hold on. Um, is, is the real estate market, like, Substantially different than it is here. Like, is it a lot? I, I realize at the center of the country, like no one super duper no one is there. lives there, like yeah. some kangaroos. Um, but is it a lot tighter as a result? Like, is is housing like super expensive? Is it like DC levels? It or is. Is it like Iowa levels or it, somewhere in between? It's regional, but overall, it's very expensive. Uh, there was some work done by Jonathan Tepper um, in the past year and John Hempton, a couple of hedge fund managers. Where they went around and basically pretended to be interested in buying homes and went to, I want to say, dozens of different banks to see what they could get lent. Mm -hmm. uh, one bank was willing to lend them, uh, they were posing as a couple, was willing to lend them 10 times their income to buy a home. That's lofty. That I, is, I personally don't think <laughs> I could afford uh, a mortgage that's 10 times my income, So, or buy a property 10 times my income. And I, I just think overall there's it's not as extreme as the U.S. was in terms of loose lending standards overall. So, like no doc loans, for example, or ninja loans, those things, uh, no income, no no job, those <laughs> things, um, that those aren't really existing in Australia. But still, prices are high, and just like we saw with dot com bubble, just because assets are freely traded and there's nothing illegal going on, doesn't mean that an asset can't get overvalued. So, I think that. There's probably risk on Australian property today. If you're out there, if you're buying for, give me a second, and you trim that guy out. If you're, if you're buying Australian property with like a five to ten year residential viewpoint, then it's not something I'd stress about. But there are a lot of people. Something like one in seven Australians own an investment property. Which is like a crazy concept to Americans, right? I mean, yeah. I certainly don't know one in seven people that own an investment property. And most of those are what's called negatively geared. So that basically means that they're losing money on a cash flow basis month to month in anticipation of getting it back in capital gains. When I heard that, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like that's a pretty foreign concept to American property investment as well. I mean, so, the things that you're describing, while not quite as bad as they were during the financial crisis, are things that were happening during like pre. 
pre-financial crisis. Yes. I remember back then, it seemed like a surprising number of my friends were budding real estate moguls. And I was like, do you actually know? what?" It just seemed odd at the time. Um, anyway, overall, I think property is expensive, and there's some some risks there to be mindful of. If you're thinking about buying the banks, which are super leveraged to that, and don't have much room or wiggle room with their payouts, and rich valuations. So overall, I'm not like predicting a, a crash. I'm just saying that I think the banks are basically priced as though everything will stay great, but there are many ways to lose, and I try to avoid situations like that. Fair enough. Um, I think that our listeners will have one question after hearing all that. Um, not that they are going to go out and buy Australian banks, but is there a way for U.S. investors to buy Australian stocks? Hmm. Yes. So you can do it directly. You can also look at uh, Australian funds, and should be clear that I'm, I'm not actively touting our fund, which doesn't even exist yet. Uh, <laughs> just saying, broadly speaking, you can look at active management. You can also look at ETFs. The trouble with ETFs in Australia, though, is that the market is super top heavy. Where the big banks, a couple big retailers, some commodity companies, something like ten companies make up almost half the index. There's another two thousand that make up the other half. Among those, you've got companies that don't look anything like the big players. There, um, there are a lot of small, fast-growing software companies that are deeply profitable, strong recurring revenue, great balance sheets. Those are the kind of things I get into. So you could look for active management, but to be honest, it's kind of um, kind of difficult. Okay. Just straight up because uh, you could go direct, uh, but active management, you want to find a fund that's based here in the US so you can make the investment. Uh, it's hard to invest in funds that are actually based outside of America because then you run into what's called PFIX rules. That's a long story short. Fair enough. We talked about index funds yesterday, so if you want to know more, I'm sorry. By when I say yesterday, I mean I taped it yesterday, so you would have listened to it on October 3rd. Time is a flat circle. So our last show is when we talked about index funds. Um, okay, so I think we've covered everything that both of us wanted to cover, which is yeah. awesome. Um, I did want to share this one fun fact about you, which is according to your Fool.com profile page, you broke your high school's 400 meter track record. I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> That's starting to get a little long in the tooth of my profile. It's been a while since I was in high school, but I did. I worked hard for that. Have you broken any other records recently? <laughs> Not recently. <laughs> Fair enough. Austin, have you have you broken any records that we should know about? Definitely not for running. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, that was Austin, our awesome producer. Just in case you were wondering. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super interesting. You're more than welcome to come on the show whenever you want. Cool. Um, I'll take you up on that. I appreciate it. I'll take you up on that next time I'm back in the office. I was going to say, yeah, the time differences are kind of wild for you to yeah. Skype in. Um, but thank you again for joining us. I'll have to share some of my Australia stories with you at a later date so that awesome. we don't bore our listeners with non-financial stuff. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Um, do you have a Twitter that people can tweet you at? Uh, just Mager, which is spelled M-A-G-Y-E-R. Yeah, I had to write it that I way. Know. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks again to Austin for producing today's show, and I hope everyone has a great week.